Today's episode of the City of Smack Podcast on the City of Smack Podcast Network is presented by Tracksmith. Just this past week, the Boston-based running brand announced the Tracksmith Foundation. The goal is simple yet ambitious, give more youth the opportunity to participate in track and field. Tracksmith believes the lessons learned from being part of a track and field team are the lessons that can create a more inclusive society. Few have done a better job illuminating the opportunities and challenges facing the sport today than Russell Dinkins, who is now the foundation's executive director. He was a guest on this podcast last year for his efforts to save the Brown men's track and field program. And for the past year, Tracksmith has been supporting Russell in his work to save college track and field programs from being eliminated. Now he'll be able to continue this work through the foundation. And with your help, the Tracksmith Foundation will be able to create more opportunities and inspire broader participation through advocacy and assistance. As the new year approaches, Tracksmith has come up with a very creative way to celebrate our sport, and that's by hosting a New Year's Eve spectacular in New York City. All proceeds from the Midnight Mile featuring Nick Willis trying to break four minutes for the mile for the 20th consecutive year at the New Balance Track and Field Center at the Armory will go towards the Tracksmith Foundation. And if you're not able to attend the Midnight Mile but would like to make a donation to the foundation, you can also do so through the Tracksmith website. Now, for my loyal listeners, Tracksmith is also offering 15% off your purchases using code CITIUS15 at checkout. Shop their latest winter collection, which is live as we speak. Everything they make is designed for the unique challenges of each training period. New colors, new styles, new season. Hit Tracksmith.com and use code CITIUS15 at checkout. Thanks for all the support on Patreon. You guys are really coming through there. We picked up a couple more backers after our last episode. So welcome to Rob Nugas and Matthew Bashirs for joining the Backers Club on there. Props to Joe Walker for upping his monthly donation. If you enjoy what we're doing, support us over at patreon.com slash Mag. Here's a breakdown of how you can think of your contributions. $4 a month on Patreon is like buying me or my producer, Mike, a cup of coffee. $8 maybe gets us a salad for lunch, and that's being generous if we're talking New York City prices. Anything above $8 a month is basically like signing up to be my best friend. So if you sign up, you get a shout out on the next episode of the podcast. You can also make a one-time donation by sending any dollar amount over to Sidious Mag on Venmo. It can be because you enjoy the conversations or you just want to shout out a friend, teammate, coach, family member, anyone who loves the show. For this episode, shout out to Zach Miller. He just ran 226 at CIM and said that that was his last marathon. Come on, buddy. You can't throw down a 226 the day after they announced that 218 is the Olympic marathon trials qualifying standard. You're 35. You're in your prime. Give yourself something big to chase. Your buddy Mark doesn't want you to hang him up quite yet. I don't want you to hang him up quite yet. Still more miles to come. So consider Venmo as a virtual tip jar if you enjoy the show. Thanks to them for coming through with some tips. Another way you can also show your love is by picking up any sort of merch over at SidiousMag.com and hitting the merch tab. And, of course, the free Christmas gift that you can give the Sidious Mag team is by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or just making sure that you subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Your reviews and ratings help make that possible and let future sponsors and new listeners know what you think about the show. So thanks again to everyone who has shared some of the most recent episodes on their Instagram stories or on Twitter. We do our best to reshare every single time someone shares it or shouts us out. We'd love to see it. My guest for today's episode is Ollie Hoare. He's an Australian Olympic finalist in the 1500 meters who runs professionally for the On Athletics Club under coach Dathan Ritzenhine in Boulder. Before turning pro, he was a stud at Wisconsin where he won the 2018 NCAA title in the 1500 meters. 
In 2021, he has set personal bests of 332 for the 1500 meters, both indoors and outdoors. He ran 351 for the mile on the track and 350 for the mile on the roads. He ran 13.22 for the 5K outdoors and then just ran 13.09 this past weekend indoors in Boston. He finished 11th in the Olympic 1500 meter final. So we touch on that race, the most recent race, what his view is on how the 1500 meters has evolved over the years and much more. Ollie's also the host of the Coffee Club podcast that he co-hosts with his teammates and his training partners. So be sure to check that one out. We talk podcaster to podcaster at the start of this show. My co-host, Mac Fleet, comes in to talk athlete to former athlete, all of that, plus your listener questions. And as we've been doing lately with some of our other episodes, you can watch this full show on YouTube and catch clips from the conversation on there as well. So be sure to subscribe to the City Smag YouTube channel for more cool content. Without further ado, here is Ollie Hoare. All right, now we welcome on Ollie Hoare of the On Athletics Club and one of the co-hosts of the Coffee Club podcast. Before we even talk running, Ollie, I want to talk, I guess, about uh, podcast life. How are you enjoying the show? It's a couple episodes deep. The reception, I think, has been, as you would put it, good for the sport. Yeah, hashtag good for the sport. I mean, I think for us, like we, as living with professional runners, we have so much time on our hands during that kind of recovery period between runs. And we thought it'd be cool to have like just a candid idea of enjoying to sit down, have a cup of coffee and have a chat and, and be much more uh, casual about things. And I think the way that we've done it is we're just having fun with it. I think you guys can come from the same background as um, it's not a chore week after week. We kind of get excited about it and we enjoy every time, you know, we can talk about different topics and different people's perspectives. And uh, it's been fun. We've really enjoyed it. And the reception has been fantastic. We got, a few shout outs at Boston University going around the track. People weren't yelling out, uh, go OAC, they were yelling out, go coffee club. So that's kind of a, kind of a fun thing. Um, but yeah, so far we're, we're loving it and it's just been really enjoyable to do. Now, who's the, the, the conversation has definitely been quality. Now, is the coffee also meet that level? Like, is there a coffee snob of the whole bunch that uh, kind of goes behind the whole coffee portion of the whole thing? Definitely. I mean, you're talking to two Australians and a New Zealander running a podcast. The coffee's got to be good. It's got to be espresso. And we've actually been really, really lucky. A lot of people um, who have been listening have been sending out their own beans and testing out different types of um, products with that. And it's been a lot of fun to make it. And we shout them out in the pod. And um, we usually take turns on making the coffee. And a few guests that we've had who are Americans who aren't even used to that kind of espresso cafe coffee have really enjoyed it. So that's been fun, too, to kind of convert some Americans onto off the drip coffee and onto the espresso coffee. So what's it's, the dream, like coffee sponsorship? Like it, it, you don't want to settle for like guess Starbucks may throw you the money, but you don't want to, I guess, settle for Starbucks coffee. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely not. I, I mean, Starbucks didn't even exist in Australia until probably like a year ago. And it's much more of a fashion statement, I think, than an actual coffee performance uh, situation. But for us, I mean, our, our goal is to roast our own coffee. We want to, we want to make, like, I mean, if you haven't seen our logo, it's a little coffee bag with my dog Angus on it. We want to kind of work with a roaster and make our own coffee and, and sell that out and make it kind of a runner's thing. Um, because obviously coffee culture is kind of big, uh, in our sport. So for us, that'd be an ideal thing if we can work with a, with a roaster with that. But I mean, I really like blue bottle coffee if they were interested in us, you know, shout out to them, but yeah, any, any kind of big sponsor would be fine. <laughs> at this point in time you know they're going to send us free beans and we can kind of enjoy the enjoy the ride 
Uh, where where do I, it's it's also kind of funny to to, to hear like Americans uh, haven't experienced that kind of coffee, like kind of where in your age demographic of professional runners, like I feel like a lot of people haven't been over to Europe, and that whole European cycle or Australian cycle hasn't really happened with like your age group yet. So that's super. It's like the Leuven camp hasn't happened. Like when I first started, was I would. When I first signed in like 14, I would say that was like part of the heyday of like the Leuven camps and like everybody would go over there and then you have to experience that whole culture. Coffee culture was massive over there. Um, that's super interesting to hear like Americans haven't uh, like sort of experienced that. But like where do you, do you guys have plans on where you sort of want to take um, your podcast? Like do you have plans six months to a year from now uh, if you want to change it at all? um or grow it yeah we do i mean we we've been we've been talking like i mean we just we had a long one this morning we're chatting about certain things like even like buying like a roasting machine and doing it ourselves or like buying like a five-year goal of like having our own kind of coffee spot like a cafe for runners um kind of idea i mean we've already got um little stickers Stickers. wow nice yeah so we've started that and I mean, we'll, we'll move into kind of that merch. We'll sell our souls and do the merch thing. Um, but I think for us, we're just really enjoying the week by week response of people kind of enjoying a conversation, particularly with the agreeing and disagreeing. I think it's been nice to have people kind of agree with some things or agree with one person and disagree and, and have an active role in a discussion in, in certain aspects of the sport, which we really enjoyed. Um, but for us, yeah, if we can like have that outlook and a positive outlook on the sport, but also kind of, I mean, like with you guys as well, bring awareness to different aspects of it. Um, that's kind of our goal moving forward. And then obviously if we can kind of create, um, you know, a coffee business around it would be awesome. Uh, you know, roasting beans, maybe potentially opening up a shop and particularly in obviously the culture with Boulder is um, a lot of people drink coffee here. A lot of people come here to run. And I think that would be a cool thing where, you know, you go and visit Boston, you see all the great sites and areas and places to, um, to enjoy with running um, and Eugene as well. Whereas you come to Boston and you think, oh, I'm going to go to the coffee club shop and, and see the merch, have a coffee. Um, you can bring your dogs. So there'll be like a little dog section for that. So that's kind of our our goal with it. Um, but obviously, you know, we take it week by week with the coffee club. I think last week we mentioned if we didn't run well at Boston, we might shut it down. So luckily <laughs> we ran well so we can keep it going. <laughs> the, the thing that I like in particular about the podcast and – at first and just kind of like texting um some one of the people in your agency i was like do you do you get a little worried when you see like the titles for each episode and um they're like no because like i think we're at that point now where you know for the longest time there's been this big push for the athletes to be more marketable and more open and share and i think what you guys are doing with the podcast in particular is pretty freely sharing your thoughts on things and people seem to like more sort of that transparency and unfiltered thoughts than uh, sort of like the cookie cutter response or just dead silence. So I'm, I'm enjoying listening to the episodes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it's a bit warming to hear that from you guys in particular, because like when we were in Boston, Jonathan Gold, who's also a journalist, um, kind of approached me and really enjoyed it and, and loved the idea of it. So that means that we're doing something right um we obviously kind of when we look, look back and listen to certain things we're like okay this will be interesting um but we kind of want yeah we want to kind of open up that discussion we don't want 
people to always agree with everything we say. We kind of want people to challenge challenge us a bit and that's how you can you know you can comment and you can interact with us and then we can kind of go back on it if we need to so for us yeah it's kind of opening up that discussion because i feel like a lot of stuff might slide under the rug a little bit and uh for us we'd like to talk about it and discuss it because then people can kind of be more respective receptive to it and um i don't know it, it makes people more aware maybe it even it, it creates hype it creates people to be more excited about the sport and maybe you know gets people behind certain people so so it's good to hear that you guys haven't gotten like the call from like on sports marketing be like, Hey, you got to cut this out next time. Or just like pull the plug on this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have gotten close with certain things. Um, uh, but much more of like us being a bit more like, I think with certain things, we, we might've been a bit not been in depth with certain uh, things and maybe brushed over it. So for us, that's just learning to be yeah. better with it. And I think you guys know, like after you do it more and more, you kind of learn um how to be much more uh professional in a sense for us i mean we fuck around a lot but i think it's just a way in which we can engage much better with the audience um and engage much better with the topic as well so for us it's a great learning experience and we're really enjoying it and i mean we watch the three of us are like we're pretty into podcasts we watch a lot of running podcasts and like we kind of learn from them and then adapt our own kind of style and i think it's nice to kind of um take notes from it and, and and progress with it so let's touch on uh, your running from this past weekend. Fresh off running 1309.96, destroy the previous Australian indoor record by 26 seconds, 12 seconds off your personal best of 1322 from back in March. Now the sub 1310 Australian club includes Craig Mottram, Stuart McSwain, Carl Birmingham, and you. So I guess like uh, how did – I guess for, for some people they thought – it's December. Why are you guys running this fast? Worlds yeah. isn't until, you know, mid-March basically. But I kind of want to go into sort of picking up from the Olympics, which we'll touch on later on. But what was the purpose of this race? And I guess how has Dathan devised a plan for you guys that it's good to run fast now, but I'm guessing the goal is going to be Eugene next year. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's the question that we got asked a lot. Why are you guys going to be you and potentially getting dropped by college kids? Because really these college kids are the best there's ever been. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're all sharp. They're all coming off national cross. And they, as you can see with the results, like they just ran a ridiculous time. So, I mean, for us, really, we, uh, I think after Zurich and then New York, for me, I had a break. And then um, eight weeks up to Boston was when we started training. And for us, really, it was just about getting that strength work in. And I think I really underestimated um, how lucky I've been to be able to, like, consistently train and take those breaks and not be injured and not have any like, kind of issues with training um, because the strength really, like, kind of relayed over for me, it, particularly with experience too. And, uh, I mean, Joe Klecker is a machine, so he's been, you know, pushing out miles and really kind of bringing the team up with that kind of scheduling. And the exciting thing for us too was George. Um, I mean, George is a guy that's notoriously been injured and not been able to kind of string together a lot of works, uh, weeks of training. And as you guys probably would have known, like the last few miles um, that he raced, he was just coming home like a steam train. He looked fantastic at the end of the season. So we really wanted to kind of, um, you know, keep him, keep him going, keep him relaxed and focused. And there was so much time between the break that we were taking after the end of the season up to our first race, which was going to be Milrose Games um, on January 29th for the three of us. 
And uh, so we thought Boston would be a great way to kind of see where we were, see where we were with the training. Um, Joe has US Cross coming up, so he's excited about that. And obviously fit, fit and ready to go. So he wanted to pace us through and we really wanted to get, you know, a great race out. And like, for me, I, I've been um, competing really well and I've been kind of really excited about the way I've been progressing with my racing and my training. But for George as well in particular, I like to be able to run 13-12, second fastest ever in New Zealand um and very very close to that New Zealand outdoor record even and to run the Olympic standard for him like it's just it's a great win for him it's a great indication for his training and confidence booster but it also shows that we're in the right place right now we don't need to stress um and kind of enjoy the process leading up to um, when we kind of sharpen up uh for a lot of those faster races uh coming into indoors and obviously world indoor champs so yeah Dathan really had that plan um of just kind of giving someone an indication of where you are we didn't think we were going to run that quick. We thought um, under 13.20 was going to be a great day for us. Um, but the pacing was great. We felt great. We kind of progressed with it. And obviously having those collegiates um, really pushed the pace and kind of rally really gave us um, a great environment to kind of run quick. How has your guys' adjustment been from last year with Dathan, uh, like his voice to you guys or, or you guys as a group? You guys as a team had a phenomenal year last year. Is your first sort of real year. And I think a lot of people can get sort of carried away with, oh, like, oh, imagine everything that we could do next year if we just basically double everything or, or double the pressure. Um, have you guys sort of kept that? How have you guys sort of kept that in check? Um, and what if, where do you sort of want to take this whole next year as a group and, and individually? Yeah, I I think, I mean, the, the, the first year we had was i'm not gonna say luck but we just we just had everything go right like we had an amazing year um we had two u.s olympians we had five olympians total just tagging on morgan but i mean like to come out of the gates like we did you expect or some people would expect like oh it's just a flash you know flash in the pan and then they'll sizzle down and there might be some implications and injuries coming into the next year so that's something that Dayton really focused on um after the season was done you know we all met together and he's very much in the idea of like, you know, people now have an expectation on our hands and they want to see us not succeed. They want us to see, see us fail because usually when there's a rise, there's a, there's a fall. That, that's just the way the sport goes. But for Dathan, he really wants us to keep enjoying what we're doing, um, really embrace that team aspect that I think is something that's unique about our group. We've, we have a very great team culture and we're very invested in each other's um, performances. I think particularly for the foreigner guys, we went down to the uh, US trials and, the emotions from that were ridiculous seeing Alicia and, and Joe um, achieve their dreams of making the Olympic games. Like we, we felt like we contributed to that. And um, Joe definitely took a piece of that as well, pacing George and I to world standards and, and national records. So we really have that great jive going. And I think building together, particularly being internationals, like not really competing for the same team, that kind of growth, um, uh, has really, really helped us kind of develop as like really great, teammates um in professional uh track running which i think is is not easy to do and i think dathan's cultivated an environment like that that's been fantastic um it's it's really tough to to be able to like re replicate what we did last year but for us it's all about enjoying it um enjoying the process and there will be times where we you know we don't have great races or things don't go to plan but we'll we'll learn from those experiences and hopefully develop as athletes and move and 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 you know hit the hit the goals and hit the marks that we want to do um individually for me um 
I think for me, I'd love to make as many teams as I can this year. I mean, we have World Indoors. We have Commonwealth Games 10 days after World Champs in Eugene. And as a Commonwealth Games athlete, like, I grew up watching that. It was a big deal for me, so I really want to make that team. Um, but World Champs in Eugene, like, Eugene's been very special to me. I won my NCAA championship there. Um, I've run pretty quick there. I've run pre there. Um, so I'd love to be able to represent my country there and, and medal. And I know George is the same mindset. Morgan's the same mindset. And so is Joe. And the girls are definitely thinking the same thing. So for us, it's just all about getting as many people on those teams as possible, um, reaching our potential from our training and um, also developing as a group. I think we really want to present ourselves as a group that isn't just, um, you know, like a one hit wonder. We want to be consistent. Um, we want to be like the Beatles. We want to be consistent. We want to be keeping keeping hits coming out. And we want to really enjoy um, cultivating an environment about excitement with, with our group um, on being a very new brand, a very small brand in the running community. Uh, we have a kind of responsibility for them to kind of show, show people, you know, what this brand's about and what they kind of entail. And yeah, for us, it's really about going out there, um, doing the best we can, representing our brand and our, each other as best as we can and being excited about it. So that's, that's really our goal for this year. And I think um, with a lot of people, like particularly with the women's side and um, the men's side, both wanting to make those teams. I think we'll see a lot of great performances coming out. And uh, yeah, it's just obviously coming off a great year, great environment, great culture. And we're hoping to continue that as much as possible. The one thing you told, I think like in the interview, I think you did with Let's Run right after the race in Boston was that like you're a believer now in like Dayton's strength <laughs> training. And so yeah. what does that look like behind the scenes? Like, I guess in training and then has, has that been like a, a step up or level up now going into, I guess this year than it was last year. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I came from, I remember when we were, they were looking at someone to coach the team and I lived, I was in Wisconsin and I lived with two uh, Michigan guys and I asked them who Dayton Rittenheim was. I almost got chucked out of the house um, <laughs> because of, you know, his reputation um, through, through his career. Uh, and I didn't, yeah, I did didn't really, know much about him always coaching um and then when we went to our first year the strength work was uh, <laughs> was it was an interesting up it was a kind of a, a growth for me i mean i did a lot of strength work at wisconsin but it was just a different level it was a it was intense it was up at altitude and my mileage had gone up a lot so i was durable enough to get through it but i think for me that the believer in ritz's training was definitely just having that stack of year and then being able to translate that um to the next stack because i thought I could burn out or I could just not be able to kind of replicate or increase what I've been doing. And um, I mean, don't get me wrong, like Joe, Joe Klecker and George were probably dropping me a lot of strength workouts because um, those guys are ridiculously good at those altitude workouts, those nine mile fart legs or uh, mile repeats or those type of tough workouts that we do kind of at the start of the season. But for me, I was much more receptive to it. I was able to tolerate it um, physically as well as mentally. And that kind of made me believe that like I, I struggled to have the idea of like me being able to improve, improve off, off last year because of the jump I made. But um, the, even for the training and through um, Dathan kind of telling me like, this is like where you would go. This is like how um, it would go through is, is you, every week you would develop and you'll hopefully be able to tap in more miles. And it's not just about running quicker, but it's about how you feel during the workout. Can you feel more comfortable? Are you more receptive? Um, and that kind of, for me was definitely big off the eight weeks after um, running a lot of 1500s and a lot of miles to make my um, Olympic team. So that was a very um, promising thing for me. And I think 
you know, all the boys have different stories about that, particularly like George um, being able to consistently get weeks in of mileage um, and be able to stay healthy and train at his level. And that's an exciting, you know, progression, um, particularly for Joe too, being able to keep those workouts and that has high mileages week after week without dealing with any injuries or fatigue. So, yeah, for us, it's all about developing as athletes. And Ritz, I mean, yeah, he's only known me, Joe. Well, he hasn't known, he's only known the, most of the team, but unlike Leo and, and Emily, for, for a year. So him, he's learning every day, every week. So that's the exciting thing about a young coach like him too. He's very receptive to that communication between athlete and coach. And, and he learns every week and he'll say, oh, I messed this up. Or he'll say, oh, this worked well and, and, and kind of grow from that. And that's an exciting thing too, that he's, he's very responsive to it. So... Yeah, he Dason was uh I love Dason. Uh he I think it was his first step into coaching he when he was still when he was banged up uh at the end of his career, uh when he was still in Portland, he came down and was a volunteer assistant at Oregon during my last year for about like six months. And he would come down on workout days and and would come down for our races and he was awesome to have around. It was a complete um, opposite side from like how Andy Powell functions, who's like, and I don't know if that's what they did on purpose, but Andy is like a very like cool, collected, not that Dathan isn't cool or collected, but a lot more emotion behind like race days with Dathan, um, like extreme emotion of like getting you pumped up for races. Andy kind of like lets you, um, I don't know, lets you set up how you want to set up for a race. Like, he'll do a little bit of motivating or whatever, but, you know, it, it, it's a little bit more mutual, I would say. Dathan would come in there, like, pre-race, as you brought to, like, step on the track, and he'd be like, you're going to go kill these guys. In <laughs> in worse words. <laughs> and you would you'd step on the race track, be like, oh, I'm going to murder these guys. And it, it was, yeah. like, a completely different aspect of anything I was used to with Vin or, or Andy. Um, and I don't know if he's still like that or anything like that, but... Oh. A hundred percent. I mean, that's the one thing that was, I mean, cause Mick Byrne, head coach uh, at Wisconsin was very much like Andy, very much reserved. Um, I mean, when Morgan won his four NCAA titles, Mick was like in the stands, not even like jumping up and down. He's just standing there. Obviously the emotion was behind him. Like he was, he was definitely feeling it, um, but he wouldn't show it. Like, and that's just the way Mick operated. Whereas with Dathan, I remember with Gateshead, my, my debut diamond league was a very important race. Cause that's like pretty much the Australian trials we had four Australians in that race. Um, uh, and we kind of got flew over. We didn't really, we were like in and out for that race as well. We didn't sleep for like 36 hours and Dathan sacrificed a lot to like get there as well. Um, and because they only like had room for one, like they only just slot me in for that race. And I remember before that race, he said like, he just, yeah, he's just revving you up. He's like, you're going to kill these guys. Like you're going to, you're going to kill it. Um, you know, have that belief, believe in your training, trust the process. And, and I remember finishing that race and like that race was an indication of me potentially making the Olympic games. Um, and he was really emotional about it. He just like grabbed me and gave me a big heart again and said, I'm so proud of you. And, and that was a, just a different reception. I think if you watch after the Boston meet, um, when Jordy crossed the line, you know, Jordy hasn't had that breakout race until we ran 13, 12 and Dathan literally crossed, <laughs> crossed through the line and just grabbed him. And there's this great photos of him just hugging, hugging George and, just being excited about it and being amped and, and Dathan's just that type of coach. Um, and he, he wears his heart on his sleeve and he's very passionate. And there's like, I mean, there's just so many examples the past year, like it was an emotional roller coaster with, with, with Leah. Um, 
and like I think if you watch the on documentary, uh, you guys will will see the recept. Like he he uh, brought her back from the dead, really, from being in a place where she didn't think she could compete in the sport anymore to being up there to potentially be that top three, and then hitting hitting that hurdle and dealing with that process afterwards. Like Dason um, puts a lot of emotion and a lot of heart into it, and it's not like other coaches don't. But I think he, the way he has been able to um, reaffirm that and make you feel. Um, you know, you, you feel like you've achieved something or, or feel like, you know, this sport is, is important to people. It's a lifestyle and it's a luxury and what we get to do is a privilege. And um, what he's been able to kind of translate, particularly to young athletes as well, like the men's team, just all out of college when he when he was coaching them. So um, to have a guy who's been at the top, who's been at multiple Olympic games and has dealt with the highs and the lows of running, um, to be able to give you that kind of support has been fantastic for us. And I know uh, at Boston, it was very exciting to see him just grab Geordie and give him a massive hug and hug Joe and, and get Joe back on the treadmill to do a massive workout afterwards. And that was, that was great, you know? Um, and yeah, I think he won't, that's not going to change. Like he'll be 80 years old, hobbling around the track um, and doing the same thing. I think that's just the way he is. And that's the way he approaches his coaching. You kind of touch on a little bit of like that unfamiliarity he had with his name at first, but then I, I mean, we're jumping around a little bit. I want to go back to the first conversation that you may have had with, was it Klecker then who um, kind of started to lay the foundation for um, the team? Because I guess when, when Joe made the team last summer, I remember interviewing him like moments after it happened. And he said that this, he, I guess that Joe was, one of the cornerstones of this team that has been built. And so it was truly special to see. I would say that you're probably the next cornerstone that sort of came in, in addition to the women that he was bringing from Michigan. So how did, I guess, the what was the recruiting pitch like for you? Was it Joe talking to you? Was it Dathan approaching you? What was that first conversation like? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I didn't know on at all. And they were talking to me before COVID hit. Um, Andrew Weeding, who works for On, I had a great conversation with him because he actually gave me a lot of insights to professional athlete life and particularly his life with Nike, which sounded horrible. Uh, just to be fair, like just the reductions and the pressure and the like that whole kind of what he dealt with there um, was mentally tough. And I think he was pitching for On saying like, look, we don't offer those kind of negative um you know, motivations, we, we offer like a positive aspect. We want to like jump into this track scene and we want to do it well and do it right by the athlete because that's how we both succeed. And um, after that, I didn't really have a conversation with Joe, but I knew Joe had signed with on um, and he was interested. We had like a couple of messages off Instagram. I have actually never really spoken to Joe um, through my collegiate career because I never really raced him. You know, I know Morgan obviously did. Um, so I got a, a bit of an insight from Morgs. Um, but I think when I had my first conversation with Dathan, I looked him up, I did my research. Um, I was so glad I didn't go to high school in, in America um, <laughs> because he sounded, he sounded like he was terrifying. Um, but I, my, 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 I had simple questions for him. I, I, my first question was, hey, like, I want to be a low 330s, 1500-meter guy. I want to make the Olympic final. I want to be a medalist in the future. Like, you obviously got great experience, but, like, where's your experience in coaching middle distance guys? Like, like, how, like how am I going to come into this team thinking, okay, you've signed Joe, um, you know, great signing. Obviously he's going to be the, the American guy. He's going to be the guy that, that I will, I will release. Um, like what, what about myself? Because 
I feel like obviously you and Joe have a lot of common with that and me not so much. And he um, talked about his time um, with Matt Sensiewicz and his time like learning and developing with those type of athletes working at Oregon. Um, and he just answered it so well that I was like, oh, shit, okay. That kind of put me uh, put me back a little bit. Um, but, um, I mean, the, the one thing I liked about Dathan too was his commitment because with a brand like On, we didn't know it was going to happen. We knew, like I knew Adidas, I knew Nike, I knew those other brands, I knew they had groups, I knew their foundations in running. On didn't have any foundations like that. So I was taking a big risk, even as a foreigner who either, you know, signs here or goes home and figures out what he's going to do at home uh, in Australia. So I was taking a big risk, Joe took a massive risk, but Dathan literally moved his whole family out from Michigan to Colorado to start this group. And that commitment from myself told me that this guy isn't here to muck around. He's not here for a contract. He's here to coach athletes. He's here to develop professional athletes. He doesn't care about, you know, those other little luxuries that people might get with a budget or, or with a salary. Like his main motivation is to come out here and to put his whole heart and, and soul uh, into coaching athletes and developing them. And that's my big indication of like, okay, I, I have much more confidence in that. And once we all moved out, I think, yeah, the cornerstones, those, those first eight, that cornerstone was really the make or break for the group. Is this group going to survive? Is the culture going to go well? Like, you know, like I raced against Carlos and, and Jordy my, most of my collegiate career, but we've never like spent time together. We've never trained together. We don't know how we're going to interact day by day. And, um, and luckily, you know, just everything clicked. We, we got on super well um, and it just, it just formed and we knew something was special even before I think our first, I mean, my first big race was in New York last year, but even before those races were happening, the training we're doing, the, the environment we were creating um, on the men's and women's side, um, it was something special. So we knew, it, we knew it was going to be good. We knew it was going to go out well. It just depended on um, how that was going to translate into racing. And it just, it just took off and we just went with it. And I think Dathan particularly, like coming from coaching um, at Gazelle and like kind of not being in an environment now where he's coaching guys at Diamond Leagues, Olympics, like he, he definitely kind of rose to that occasion as a young, young coach um, coming off professional running. Because obviously not all professional runners are going to be good coaches, but he's very unusual in the sense of like he's very, very selfless as a coach. Um, and he'll do what he, what he can and what he must to get everybody to a point where they're enjoying the sport and enjoying the lifestyle. Which is funny because... I think he told me as a runner, he was a complete asshole. Like he was individualized, like just going for it, hitting the miles and training the way he wants to train. Whereas a coach, he's very much aware and receptive of everybody's strengths and weaknesses and trying to develop them together. So, um, yeah, that's, I think for me, that indication of his commitment made me thinking that, um, you know, if he's, he's doing that, then what have I, what have I got to lose? Uh, obviously his, well, I, w I mean, I would say his his strength background is obviously doing you some favors right now, too. Do you take pride in sort of you, Stewie, Jakob? There's a couple others. You guys have quickly changed how the 15 is run, how the men's 15 internationally is run, and especially in the U.S. Um, at the domestic meets here are run. Um to the point where I think it was uh, Whiteman was saying that he needs to change his training because of how different it's run all, all of a sudden. You will front run and run hard every single time and sort of create your own luck. I think Stewie is doing the same exact thing. 
um, your guys' DL points, like, through the roof, um, the wins, the consistent, what, 334 and under races that you've had. Um, do you see yourself kind of doing the same thing? How do you see, and how do you see, like, the 15 trending this year and, and next? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I, coming off college, I watched a lot of races. And the one guy that I loved watching race was Matt. Matt Centro because he was technically perfect. Like regardless of the re- like the where the race was, because it was much more of a tactical championship race, he was perfect. The way he raced, the way he positioned himself, um, the way he made him, his moves was like um, like almost spot on. It was just it was great to watch. And I think Matt was the catalyst to change the way people run the fifteen hundred because of his gold medal in Rio. I think that's what started it because people like me started to see that people can win races at that pace. You just got to close. And I thought, well, I can counter that. Chewy thought, I can counter that. Jakob, you know, Chariot, they, they can counter that. They'll go out in 151 and they can hang on because they've got that speed endurance, they've got that strength. Um, and then people started to become more receptive to that kind of running. Josh Kerr as well. Um, you know, he'll, he'll go out and solo at 331 because he knows he can do that. Um, so I think Matt winning a race like that who was like obviously a slow 1500 meter olympic final but the way he won it i think made people realize that they could win a race the other way um they could come off a training in a different way and i think that's why even now the 5k is so important uh in 1500 meter running um you look at the 5k pbs and that's one of the reasons why bu was was a good indication for us is because a lot of the 5k prs for those athletes is very very close to 13 minutes and that center is a 30 minute um 5k um stewie has 1305 you know yakub's got 1240 something i don't know something ridiculous like you know those those kind of um people have those kind of you know those times and i mean Kerr has the same curse olympic bronze medalist 1322 and a 145 146 so he can run those other events and then i think being good at those other events and being competitive really can help you translate to a 1500 because the way the olympics went which i kind of thought it would was that every race was quick, but it, it still kicked. People still kicked afterwards. Um, I mean, the Olympic record was broken in the semifinal. Uh, it, it, it was just, it's going off a trend where I think now people are going to be able to maintain that, that speed, but be able to either hold it or just increase it. I think um, going into these competitive races, like, uh, you know, Cole Hocker, for example, he can now prove to himself that he can run at those, those races he can run at that pace because people were thinking oh he can close on a 25 like it's no one's business but he really proved that he can he can kick off those races and he can be competitive in those races so i think the trend is going to stay that way um because i think a lot of people are now translating their training to be able to run good 5ks good 800s to run a good 1500 um most 10k runners run a really good 5k um you know and and just those other events have now become more important than than you realize because people are able to kind of develop their strengths from those other events and then really combine those ingredients into that one race that they're being what well, they're specializing in which is for me the 1500 so yeah i think this year you're going to see a lot of 330s from a lot of people i think i wouldn't be surprised seeing um you know hawker um Kerr, all those guys going into those races and running sub 330s but being much more of a tactical race um eugene's a fast track the hype in eugene is going to be fantastic and I think um, going to those 1500, you've got a crazy depth of runners who can run low 330. So I think there's just going to be 330 races and it's going to be who can last, who can keep doing that 
um, who can keep running 330 races and be competitive. And I think that's what's going gonna, gonna to be what it takes to win a medal at those championship races. Yeah, because it was after the Olympic final, Nick Willis called it like the greatest 1500 meter race that has ever been run. Now you had the luxury of being in the race. So I'm curious as to like your vantage point like one do you agree with kind of like his assessment there and then two i guess like what what made it so special i guess this was i guess your first major global championship on on the senior level what stood out to you i guess about the way before this it's like ncaa's um yeah it's totally different totally different ballgame (laughs) exactly (laughs) so uh what stood out to you about the racing and and the tactics there yeah i agree with nick's i think as well, it was probably the hardest 1500 meter final to make because the first round I looked at my heat and went, are you going to be fucking joking? Like, I think Kerr finished sixth or seventh in that race. And he came up to me and he was like, I just fucked that up. But he, he got through like the rate, the races were insane. Um, I think I ran 334 average for every race. Um, and it's just, I think it was just so competitive. Um, with so many guys being able to run like that, it, it mentally drained me. And I think the amount of effort and energy I put into making the team um, was catching up to me. The toll was getting to that point. Um, I just, and I think with the Olympics as well, um, obviously COVID I think had a factor too, is you couldn't leave the environment. I couldn't switch my brain off. And I spoke to Nick about it. He gave me some great advice about get obsessed with something other than running, reading, anything, video games, just, just do something else. You need to be able to take your mind away from it. But I really couldn't do that. And every round I went through, I started to deteriorate a little bit more. Um, and then when I got to the final, I think for me, uh, mentally and physically, I was just at that toll of, of 1500 meter running. And I thought, I, I mean, I, I didn't have the race I wanted to run, but I wasn't disappointed in my run. I ran 335 um, and I was 11th. So <laughs> really for me, I, I think it was just a great learning experience of being able to, okay, this is my first major world championships, Olympic games. What do I take away from this and improve on moving forward? And I think that's the one thing that Nick uh, gave me great advice on is that you, you learn how you, you are receptive to each round and how you deal with that kind of um, stress, whether it's intrinsic or ex- extrinsic. Um, and you've got to find your way. You've got to find your way to deal with it. And Mohamed also gave me great advice too, because he's, been able to kind of go through those races and be able to deal with it um, in a different way too. So I think for me, watching it from an outside lens, it was probably one of the greatest races. And the, and the thing that broke my heart when I finished was there was no one around to see it live. Like obviously you had the journalists and the people there that really appreciate the sport and love it. And the volunteers that worked so hard to set that up regardless of the odds they were facing, but you don't have the young fans sitting there watching something unfold like that, because I feel like it's some of those, events and some of those things like Carson Mulholland, like people will think, Oh, I was there. I saw that. Like I felt the energy there, but no one was there and I couldn't enjoy that. So hopefully in Paris, people are able to experience that. And those races will um, continue constantly develop and become better and greater. Uh, but I definitely agree with Nick's comment. I think it was, it was something that was a privilege to be a part of and, and a great learning experience. But even to make that final, like there's a lot of guys, um, that didn't make it that was potentially could be in the top six. So um, to be, have that competitiveness in the sport should be a really exciting factor because hopefully it mixes it up. It makes things more exciting. You can root for um, more people to kind of be upsets, win medals and, and, and be more competitive. I'll tell you, you had the people who took you at 
plus 10,000 to one odds. Uh, excited to even just see you uh, at, in the final. <laughs> I think that's what uh, the Oregon, uh, I guess, like betting line came out at the first time it was out. And I was like, it's too silly for no one to just not throw any yeah. money on it. <laughs> my, my, my brother and his mates, like, um, there was a gambling thing in Australia, like betting on it. And the funny thing about that was, because I don't think they fully understood the sport. Because I think they had, like, there was, like, people that were definitely way better than other people with lesser odds. But it might have been related to, like, social media following or, like, presence in the, in the media. And the funniest thing about that for me was, I think my brother and all his mates were starting to bet on it. On, on me and my odds dropped significantly down uh, before <laughs> even the event started. So like they were obviously not sure of like how the betting goes, but I think it's a really good thing for the sport because it gets people excited about it um, and gets people more invested in maybe personalized stories and how people got there. Because I think the Olympics has so many unhidden stories and unhidden um, messages that people just miss. And I think they're great um, to be able to open that lens for people to kind of dive in by putting a dollar on someone that you didn't realize, you know, had to fight a lot of their, you know, they had to fight injury. I had to fight a lot of adversity to get where they are. So, um, yeah, that was, I thought that was pretty hilarious the way the betting thing was structured, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I would have made people a lot of money, but unfortunately I couldn't pull it off. So hopefully next time. Yeah. I was, uh, I was, uh, messaging back with, uh, Sean whip quite a bit about uh, yeah. uh just the the odds that we were seeing in the u.s and then the odds we were seeing down in australia and like just the differences of what you could find to do um hopefully it's all going to be a little bit more available to do in the u.s obviously as an athlete yeah. you can't really uh no no, no, no you can't no, be doing really anything do but that. as <laughs> a fan now it's extremely it's extremely fun uh go ahead yeah. chris yeah uh i was gonna ask sort of like uh, the actual like Olympic experience outside of competition, was it different? Because I know Dathan was probably registered as Joe, Joe's coach with Team USA. And so he was able to go see him at the pra practice track. Like, was that something that you were just like restricted to FaceTime? And I mean, it was good enough. You got to see Joe in the village, but uh, yeah. Yeah. to, to, I guess, lose <laughs> Dathan and that, that, I guess that pump up speech that he provides beforehand, like must've been different. Yeah, I, I was very fortunate um, for the AOC because they did give him passes for my event. Um, I think they weren't like because I didn't really, I don't really have a big I may it's obviously developing now, but my name wasn't very big in Australia. Like Stewie was the big name, and rightfully so. What he had done and achieved um, for the past few years has been phenomenal for our sport. Um, but he was kind of the big name because he was from home and he had much more of that media presence, which was fantastic for our sport. Um, but the Australian community didn't really know me. This is my first Olympics. You know, I kind of broke out. But once I started making it through the rounds, they started going, okay, yeah, you know, we'll give Dathan a pass and make sure he's there. Um, luckily for me, my I think my final was Alicia's 10K. So Dathan was always going to be at the track, which was really nice. And I was very lucky with that. Um, but he was able to see myself and Morgan, uh, Alitzi as well from Poland um, as much as he possibly could. But he didn't have, like, the luxury of um, what those Bauman coaches have with those really – 24-hour passes going wherever they want kind of thing. I think, obviously, that's a Nike thing um, because they had, like, five passes, like, five coaches there from Bauman, whereas, like, you know, a, a coach that has five Olympians uh, couldn't see his athletes. I don't think he even got to see Alicia much at all before her race, but um, he, he made it work. Um, I mean, Dathan tells me stories about being stuck in his hotel room and then traveling with the coaches and going to 7-Eleven every night and picking up his meal, going back into the hotel room and staying there. So it was a very restricted process, but he loved it. 
Um, and he definitely, you know, put in his passion when he could. Uh, but I was very lucky that like some things aligned and I was able to kind of see him. And I think the one thing about having him there as well, which we were very fortunate, particularly his first time Olympians for all of us is the way he described events that he what kind of went through mistakes he made going to the Olympics. And obviously it was a very different one because of the restrictions and kind of being forced you know, into kind of the environment that you were pushed in. I mean, delegations had different protocols with COVID um, and Australia was very, very strict. Um, but the way he kind of talked about being able to like get yourself ready for the, like, you know, the, the time management, I think was important. You know, the buses, the getting to the track, getting ready the warm up, the warm down, um, all those kind of things. It was, it was reassuring to have someone there that knew how the process would work um particularly for all of us who who haven't been there before so having him there was a great presence and i mean a lot of athletes don't get that privilege but we were very lucky and uh, we're able to get in there awesome uh, all right we're gonna go to some instagram questions that we have uh from listeners and we'll start with well keith well <sighs> I, I was confused by this at first too because like i was like oh what's why is everyone calling him keith in the mentions and then, of course yeah. if you listen to your guys's podcast i guess you said that on the commonwealth uh for the commonwealth games you get you were registered as keith once right is that correct yeah so what happened was um i got like they have like a portal login and obviously with COVID, COVID protocols and like medical data they're trying to set up like a an application where you you send in all your information uh and they put me down as keith hall I don't know where that came from, um, but my username is still Keith Hall because they can't change it. They just rechanged the email and put it back to Oliver. So we <laughs> joked about that in the pod. Um, and then it kind of became a running in joke. Like people will call me Keith of the track. Um, there's already an Instagram account called uh, Keith Hall 1309, who has almost like 150 <laughs> followers. Um, but there's a kind of a joke that's going on now that I'm not Oliver. I'm not like the guy doing it. I'm actually the imposter and Keith is the guy that's coming in. So it's like an alter ego kind of thing going on at the moment, um, which is pretty funny. Um, you know, Athletics Australia, unfortunately made a jo- uh, a mistake and now they have to deal with people calling me Keith Hoare. But um, that's a great, <laughs> to get to the question. Um, I mean, they, the boys call me Keith here, so I haven't, you know, I haven't really been enjoying it, but it's been pretty funny. Uh, Keith consider 5K at Worlds and Commonwealth. Um, I mean, we, I had this conversation with George, actually, because, I mean, Jordy's thinking of doing the 15 um, and potentially maybe another event uh, in the future. But, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how I would – I might hopefully run another 5K in the future because running it like that's one thing. Running it against the best in the world in a competitive way where they can just drop a K like it's nothing is another thing. Um, I think it'd be interesting to maybe potentially do like a 1500 Worlds and maybe a 5 walk. 5k commonwealth games maybe mix it up and match um and see what we could do i mean there are talks of from people saying oh you could potentially double at the at the world champs for the 1505 k if i am lucky enough to get selected for it um but it'd be an interesting experience i mean this is my third ever 5k in my history of running my second as a pro um so i think for me i just need to unfortunately run more 5Ks, which is, doesn't sound great to me because I love the 1500. But it is something that I'm considering now because I think after being able to run like that and, and being comfortable and obviously so early in the season, I think it could be an event for me that I could potentially do well at. So definitely considering it. Awesome. All right, our next one. Mustache care routine, need to ask everyone. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Um, well, the great thing about it is 
the three boys in the pod can grow pretty good mustaches. Um, and they're all they're different type of mustaches. Like Geordie's isn't as thick, but it kind of is a lot. The, it's a lot more like of a Zorro mustache. Um, <laughs> and he like he he kind of has the hair where it grows here and then it just doesn't like. He shaves it, then it grows back like it very quickly, like my face. Whereas with Morgan's mustache, he can kind of turn into different shapes to the sizes. Like Morgan's mustache can like have a mind of its own. Um, and my mustache is just like pretty thick and red, unfortunately. But our mushroom care and routine is the same. Like we have like a little wax that we put on it, um, you know, make it look nice. But we also try and shave it up and, and do the twisty thing. Um, I know Drew Hunter's got a fantastic mustache. Um, but we were kind of growing them because we thought we looked like, um, you know, like – 80s porn stars thought it was pretty funny um and then obviously we thought why not start a member and, and raise some money and for men's mental health and men's health and 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 kind of have fun with it so we did that and we were very lucky to get a great reception for that we raised a bit of money more than we expected and it was that was awesome um and then my dad started growing mustaches all our mates started growing mustaches so we're kind of <laughs> kind of starting that trend of looking like uh 80s porn stars so that was fun um uh, but yeah that mustache routine you know you keep it clipped trim down the rest of your face and use a bit of bit of that balm bit of wax because it, it makes it smell good because i noticed for me in particular like when i drink coffee or eat stuff you get like a little bit of a after smell <laughs> in that area so putting the balm there really really hinders that so if that's a, that's sure. a that's a must you you've got to make some sort of uh, bet with Dathan to force him to grow out his. Uh, I don't know. We've, we've tried. I know, I know. That's why I'm saying you gotta you gotta have some sort of bet with him to to force him to do it because that guy sub three fifty at Milrose and, and yeah, he'll sub three fifty at Milrose. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something. I mean, we'll, we'll actually we're gonna collaborate that as well and, and try and push him to grow out um, a mustache or goatee. I'd love to see him with a goatee because I think he's got the gray kind of freckle like the freckly kind of colored um bits and pieces of of hair that are coming out there now and he, he grows out a bit then he shaves it down it's all clean shaven but we're going to try and stop that and make him grow out a grow tea because i think it'd be hilarious yeah so uh, look out for that he might i think one of the years he was running professionally i think he may have rocked the goatee i, I might have to go oh, back and, and look i'm gonna at have to find that photo with those old those old like um 2002 sunglasses that are you know, <laughs> oh kind of rounded i gotta uh, find yeah, that photo I, I, I have got this photo in my head that I, I think might be him. All right, on to our next one. Australia versus UK versus USA versus World 4 by Mile. Who wins? Who's on your team? Um, how to improve your sport is too big of a question. We'll stick with the with the relay. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is, I mean, you guys probably already mentioned it, but you know that mixed relay that they had mm-hmm. at the Olympic Games? I would prefer to scrap that and turn it into a DMR. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think. Too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I. Yeah. I think you guys have mentioned. Like, I just think that like it's such a missed opportunity um, because the DMR is such an exciting sport in NCAA, and if you look at the countries that could be in it, there's a lot of countries there that could be competitive because not every country has a good 400 meter runner, not every country has a good 800 runner, but they have great overall runners that they could do. Um, on the Australian team, obviously Stewie, um, myself, um, I think. Honestly, Matt Ramson, I think, would be very good at that event. I think um, if he stays healthy and, and can get through that, he can probably run. I mean, he's run a 351, um, 334, 1500 to mile. Uh, and then I think Morgan um, would be a very, very dangerous um, four by mile. The UK has a ridiculous um, amount of depth there. Uh, I mean, 
you got Whiteman, you got Haywood, you got Grice, um, and Kerr. You got <laughs> Kerr. Yeah, I, I mentioned Kerr last. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the depth there is unbelievable, and they're not the only ones. I'm sure missing like Gooley and, and and other guys that have run, you know, close three thirties to three fifty miles. Um, I think the UK would be probably the favorite and the hardest one to beat. The US though. Um, would be interesting because you have Hocker, you have Centro, you have Nagus, um, and Tia. I mean, Tia's run 350. Um, he's, a, you know, the collegiate record holder in the mile, which I keep forgetting <laughs> because of, you know, how crazy that year was for, for both those boys. But I think it would be a great race and a great uh, mix-up because even like, I, I don't even think Kenya, Kenya would have a great team, but I don't think they would have the depth. Um, particularly just the durate, like just the way that that race would go. I think, I think UK, US, and Australia would be very, very dominant in that event. So that would be very exciting to watch. I think um, who would win? I'm going to say Australia, because obviously. Um, <laughs> but I think it would be. I think if you put it down to it, it's going to go into the last 400, and it's going to be between the three, and they're all going to be there. So it depends on who's going to be able to to pop it off and finish it off well. So I'm going to call Australia because obviously you know, I'm biased, but okay. that would be an amazing race. And I think that would really hype up people in the sport and also much more of a, yeah, the team-based thing. It's just exciting. Like if you ever watch the relays and, uh, I mean, obviously the relays in the Olympic Games for track is phenomenal, but the relays, the longer relays in, uh, in swimming are, are amazing to watch because it just changes all the time. And I think that would happen a lot. Yeah. Well, even, yeah. Um, even like, we're all, all distance people here. Like, there's what it goes to like six to eight deep for the hundred. Like, who gets to travel because of the relay pool and and substitutions and stuff like that. And then in all the distance events, top three, and that's it. Uh, yeah. So a DM, like a DMR or four by mile at you know champs and stuff, I think would be phenomenal. Um, also, it allows that fourth place person to probably go in the eight or yeah. Yeah. you know in the fifteen. Uh, you know, 400 runners, they have that whole relay pool. Uh, all the sprinters have that relay pool. Um, yeah. It's a no, big I... relay pool too. Yes. <laughs> it's massive. <laughs> in the US. I think they like took like 10 people. Yes. It's huge. Like there's so much depth there, you know. Uh, can show right. it off. Next one. Biggest culture shock when you moved to the US. Oof. Um, I definitely, I think for me, it was the coffee culture. Um, the, that kind of breakfast brunch culture. Um was a big bit of a shock. Also sport, I think, which is is interesting thing because we're very sporty in Australia, but collegiate, like collegiately wise, the way people like just wear their, they wear their their college with so much pride in Australia. That's just not the case because we don't have college teams like competing like that as much or as like in a larger scale like that. So that was a massive shock. Um, Like I remember going to a football game and getting absolutely cursed, cursed out to the point where a guy wanted to fight me because I wasn't wearing any Wisconsin gear. I was just wearing like, <laughs> I think I was wearing some like just casual gear. I was getting ridiculed because I was in a really nice seat. I was watching the football and I was just getting completely destroyed and I didn't get it. Like I was like, I'm here supporting. I don't know what you want from me, but then I look around and everyone's in red or white, you know? Um, <laughs> so that was a big culture shock for me. And also the coffee, because I just could not understand how people can drink that drip drop, drop coffee. It's just disgusting. Like I don't like I'm, I'm I, it's unusual to not see in Australia like five a.m. to six a.m. cafes being opened and people going in for their coffee in the morning um, and that kind of that's a big culture shock for me because I remember 
when I first moved to the US, nothing was open until probably seven, eight o'clock and people were making drip coffee and, and pouring it in. And I just couldn't drink that crap. So that was a bit of a shock for me. And I really enjoyed when I got my nice espresso machine and being able to like control that, that culture shock and be able to bring a bit of home back. Um, I took a recruiting trip to Wisconsin, uh, you know, obviously my, my senior year and the, the jump around, uh, as a recruit oh, yeah. was absolutely wild. And then we went to a, um, we went to a hockey game against what's the, what's Wisconsin's big, biggest, uh, hockey rival. Minnesota? I would say it's Minnesota or Boston. College, I think it yeah. was Minnesota. They're both. They're very it was, good. It was it was wild. Like that was uh that recruiting trip was absolutely wild and I absolutely loved my my weekend there. Um <laughs> that was cool. It was I it was phenomenal. The, the, the sporting events were so fun. Um That's awesome. Yeah. It was close. There was a shot I was going to go there. Um all right, here's your next one. Oh, do I have it? Yeah, I got it. Um, favorite non-running related memory at Wisconsin? Oh, it has to be, honestly, it's just the, I guess it's non-running related. It's hard because everything kind of related to running. Um, I, I loved, um, I don't know. I guess it's running related. So I can't say that one. I, I, I loved how I love the, like the scene, like the, the college life, I think in Wisconsin, in Madison. Madison's a very unique place. Um, I mean, I traveled around a lot and seeing other colleges having a similar vibe, but the city is literally built into the college. I feel like the city's not itself. Like Madison isn't a city more or less than Madison is a college town. Um, and I loved the, just the atmosphere, game day, the atmosphere, like the people around there, like the bars, the, the food life. It was actually such a shock for me because I didn't know much about Madison moving from Sydney. Um, I was getting much more of a vibe of like a small town, not having that much of a, a culture shock in the sense of um, like a city life, but they just had such a way of, of, of making you feel like you're part of a, of a community that's still like very much college based. Everyone was on the same ten, kind of team. Um, when you saw foreigners coming in wearing Minnesota or Michigan, um, you know, clothing or apparel, people would just belittle them in a good way. Obviously they, they weren't, super mean but they'd stir them up and, and give them give them a bit of shit and that was what i loved about it was that like it was their town and, and and i really enjoyed that because it made me feel like obviously coming from such a far away away from home it made me feel like i had a second home like i was creating a another home here in the u.s and i really loved that and i still do miss it a lot so um that's probably one of the biggest uh favorite memories i have is just being a part of that um that town in madison chris have you chris have you ever been there Madison, I took a couple trips up for the cross country meet. Uh, I didn't spend too much time in the city. I think I was just kind of in and out because I was. I went to Marquette down in Milwaukee, so I just like took the the bus up. But all I remember, my favorite thing was uh, the cheese curds up there were better oh. than in Milwaukee. Uh, it was at the old the old fashioned, I think is what it was called. That that place yeah, like, was really yeah. cool. That place is like legit. That place and Dolly's yeah. Dumplings are like the two big places to get like the best cheese curds they reckon in the, in the world. Oh, I absolutely loved and was totally shocked by like when class got out and then all of a sudden oh, yeah. 40,000 uh, <laughs> motorbikes or scooters just ripping around. Like everybody owned uh, like a little moped or whatever. Yeah. And it was just like, it was instead of, like Eugene, it was bikes. 
because the campus was way smaller, but like just because the campus is in the city, everyone just it was crazy. Class got out and there was just thousands of them everywhere. I've heard that's changed a little bit now. People have like electric scooters. Like they've bought oh, wow. like a lot of the football team have electric scooters now and they ride them around. And Makes I was like, sense. wow, what a change. All right, here's the next one. Uh, how much Mountain Dew <laughs> do you drink in the off season? What is your favorite Mountain Dew flavor? I didn't know you were a Mountain Dew person. Yeah, no, it's 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 an unrunning joke. Uh, I am a Mountain Dew person. Um, how much do I drink off season? I remember coming back from New York and just having a two liter bottle. I don't know what that is in the answers, but I had that and I drank that in the tie day and I was sick. Because um, <laughs> oh. I was just like so excited to be able to like drink a lot of it it's just disgusting i don't endorse any drinking soda do not do it you'll be a better person than me um but i just it's just something that i it's a little you know a little treat that i have for myself when i drink that um but my favorite flavor honestly just the original one there's like this old school one i could get at wisconsin that was like the original original one like with a different label that was my favorite um but yeah i don't really have i don't really mess with the other flavors i just get the the original one if i'm gonna get a soda it's usually that one but i try i'm trying to substitute that with sparkling water so i'm trying to drink a lot of sparkling water because i think it's just the bubbles that i'm addicted to but yeah i don't think the the question made the cut of like the ones that i screenshot from instagram but there was someone who did ask uh if you had to give up it was either beer which i would guess i would throw uh NA beer, I guess, uh, that you guys always shout out on your podcast or Mountain yeah. Dew, but I'll throw in coffee. Which of the three would you give up? I would give up Mountain Dew because I can't, like, I love my coffee. I love like the process of making coffee too. I find it very meditative. Um, and I think as well, like, <laughs> um, definitely, um, yeah, I just, I love beer. I'm sorry, I, did, I really love beer. And I think that's the one thing I've loved it being in Colorado is the beer here is fantastic. The NA beers we've been trying out in the pod have been lovely. Um, and I've really enjoyed being able to try different types of beer, hazy IPAs. Like we've got a really good brewery down from where we live. Um, and I think we definitely have that. I mean, Jordy has this kind of saying, a hazy a day keeps the doctor away. So <laughs> we, we kind of enjoy, like, I think it's also that process of like recovery mentally being able to sit down with your mates have a beer just one beer have a chat and then get back to work. like we just really enjoy that kind of aspect to it so yeah i definitely get rid of mountain dew i it just it, it pains me to say that because i have an addiction it's it's, it's there's, a, there's a problem with me with that but we'll we'll, right. we'll try we'll try and get through it we've got uh just two more of these so here you go what's it going to take to beat Jakob at the world champs it's a great question um, I think it's interesting because his dad did mention that his threshold is pretty much perfect. Like he can't get much better in that threshold sense. It's his speed though, that he can get a lot better in, which is terrifying because if you look at the way he races, he's able to kind of finish off that race as best as possible. Um, and he looks like he can run a very, very fast pace, but very relaxed at the end. Like the way he's able to finish races is, is, is very impressive. He's always been able to kind of push it through and stay relaxed. And relaxed fast is a hard thing to learn. Like, I feel like when you run fast, like, I'm sorry to use him as an example. Um, and no no offense to him, but Cole Hawker, the way he runs that last 100 meters is hard to watch as a runner because he's just throwing everything at it. His legs are going everywhere, but he's, he's getting the result. He's getting the win. He's getting through it. But if you watch Jakob um, finish a race, it doesn't, like, he doesn't lose 
that energy, it's still getting pushed out and he's very much getting control of what he's doing. He's relaxed and he's fast. And I think the way to beat Jakob in a race like that is to be able to kind of not let him go um, and retaliate when you know, because I think with him, um, you know, he was, he was very tired at the end of the season. Um, he, he mentioned that he just wanted to have a break when I got to Zurich and Chariot was able to get him for that um, Diamond League final. But I think for him, like, it's just, it's all about being able to be there and be receptive to him um, to be able to finish him off. Because really, I mean, yeah, his, his threshold is on point. But if he speeds on point, then people are going to be able to develop that. And people like Cole, for example, if he's able to kind of be able to stay relaxed and run fast like that and, and keep all that energy um, and push it into a way in which he can kind of be much more, um, you know, um, uh, what's the word? Just like yeah, a fish much more efficient, that's the word. If he can be much more efficient in that energy output, he could fly past Jakob in that last 100 if he's there and he's, he's capable of it. And that's probably what I would want to do and that's what Kerr would want to do and pretty much everybody else in the world who wants to be you know, a world champion. So for Jakob, yeah, you, you really want to be able to... Obviously, the strength's important. The threshold's important. People know that. But obviously, now there's, a, there's an aspect of being relaxed and fast that you need to be able to kind of um, perfect. And that's going to be what it takes to win... Uh, a world championship in the 1500. All right, here's our last RG question. Between you and Jordy, <laughs> will there be a friendly rivalry for Oceana Rapids? Of Oceana. Oh, me and George have always had an interesting relationship with, uh, I mean, the first time, I mean, when George won um, indoor in the indoor mile, I, I remember um, thinking like, this guy's gonna be annoying. He's going to be annoying for me because he's not. He's going to be living rent free in my head, and he has been for a while. Um, and I've really enjoyed kind of the being able to live with him and being on a team with him now because I can give him a bit of shit too because I think now I can kind of even the score out because he lives in my head, but I can like annoy him. Um, I think yeah. I I mean right now me my uh, me Jordy and Morgan could easily when Morgan gets you know, up to the up to where he wants to be able to perform and race. Easily those these three guys could be interchanging between Oceana Records. Um I think we all want to knock Nick Willis off the record books. Um <laughs> just because I think for him, you know, it'd be fine to see his reaction to that. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I think we definitely have that rivalry and that excitement about it. I mean I didn't even know that we broke the Oceana record um, I guess it makes sense because New Zealand and Australia are probably the two dominant countries in Oceania um, to have a record like that. So when I broke it and I made sure I beat Geordie, um, that was an exciting moment because I kind of had PTSD of him coming back um, and passing me in the last 200. Uh, but he did close in the 26. He just wasn't up behind me, thank God. Um, yeah, that rivalry will continue. And it will continue with Morgan too. And hopefully you guys will can see that and can see that little bit of um, resentment or a little bit of... Um, arrogance uh, on the pod when when it eventually happens when you know maybe Geordie beats the Oceania record or Morgan or myself we can kind of keep people up to date with that <laughs> awesome all right the all final right, questions I ask every guest first one is yeah. uh what's the meanest thing you've read about yourself on let's run.com oh I did get something mean uh somebody mentioned that I I like I was I was overweight like I was fat I was, like skinny fat <laughs> And I, and, I, and I felt hurt by that because I thought I worked really hard to like do my physique. But I remember when I read that comment because I was a sophomore and I got to the track and Mick doesn't hold anything back. And he said, have you had a bit of a couple of muffins, darling? 
because I had my shirt off and I was running and I had these love handles just flapping in the back. I had some like, I don't know what, like some fat, it was Mountain Dew reserves near my back. Um, so that, that was pretty hurtful. But I mean, I've read, that's, I think for me, it was just funny because I read hurtful things about like my performances or um, my racing. Yeah. Like, or like, I don't know, stuff like that, but I didn't really find that hurtful. It was, it was of the objective thing, which was, I was very disappointed in myself because I thought I could be, be, be better than that, but I wasn't. I was very insecure, so we did a lot of lot of uh, a lot of uh, sit ups to try and get rid of it. Still there, but luckily I can wear the speed suit and it sucks it all in. So. <laughs> uh, next one up was I haven't done these in a while. It's a uh, funniest drug testing story you've got. Oh, well, I guess the funniest one for me was definitely um, in New York. I had this old guy who. Um, had to like follow me around. Um, and I was kind of cooling down because I couldn't, I couldn't pee yet, but he was kind of trying to like run with me. And I was scared this guy was going to have a heart attack. Cause he was like 80 years old. And I don't think, I think it was his like first time. He was very serious about it. And that's the one thing you can get. You can get ones that are very, very serious about it and will not like, you can't even like go past the corner without them being there. Or you get ones that like, don't even say anything to you and you could all of a sudden run off and they're like, Oh, he's gone. I guess I'll report that to the, to the thing. So like, he was one of those guys that was just on you. Like, um, like shit on Velcro. He just wouldn't, wouldn't leave. And, um, yeah, he was just running around and then all of a sudden he had to take a break. So they actually swapped guys <laughs> and I got another guy who, who actually had to follow me around as well. So that was kind of funny. Cause I literally was, it was indoor track. It was at the, uh, ocean breeze. So I was running up and down this like little section of the hallway and he was following me up and down, up and down. I was like, God, <laughs> mate, you, you know, you can stand at one side. I'm coming back. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, assuming they could hold a nice conversational pace with you, they don't have to be runner. They don't have to be a real person. Where would the run take place and who would it be with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, I'd love to run. Um, I haven't actually done it. Um, and it's something that I've had to do because I know obviously Naki aside, but that track with the trees in it, what's that track called? Yeah, I'd love uh, to Michael run Jackson there. On campus, yeah. I'd love to run there because I think I I remember growing up seeing that thing and I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'd love to run there and I'd love to run um, with I think Sebco because um, particularly obviously I'd love to run with Steve Avet too. Those two are my favorite because of their rivalries and I'd love to see their like outlook on the sport, like what they did and 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 the way they kind of portrayed the way they were running. Like I had, this, I had so many questions for them as athletes, but also as like their lifestyle, because I think they were in a different era, but they were just unbelievably good and from the same country. And um, that to me would be very interesting to see how like that, like their outlook on the sport would have been. So that was, de- that would definitely be for me. If you you just got to cap him at Worlds probably. He'll definitely be at well, Worlds. I, He's- I ran, I ran, yeah, I ran into him at Zurich and he knew who Dathan and I were, which was like huge for me, but, I mean, you know, he's the big president, so probably won't see him much around um, commoners like me, but <laughs> I'd love to prick his brain because I feel like him and, like, Johnny Walker and, um, you know, there's a lot of athletes, a lot of mid-distance athletes in particular I'd love to sit down and have a have a chat with because I think everyone's perspective is so different going into that event. And that event for me is just – 1500 in particular is just, like, a, it's an interesting event. Um, so, yeah. 
Last one has nothing to do with uh, running. It's you get 25 shots from half court on a full size basketball court. If you make one, you win 25 million dollars. If you don't make any, you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shots? Yeah. Really? I would. The issue is because I I'm a, I play I risk I ri- I always risk stuff, and that's like a bad trade. I mean, have you ever played Farkle? No. Like, no. uh, there's like Farkle, like dice, or like when you gamble on something, I always take it. I always go for the gamble, and it's really bad because I always lose. <laughs> and, but when I win, I think like, oh yes, this is beautiful. I'm gonna win again. So that's why I don't go to casinos. Um, but yeah, like, I I, I risk it. I definitely risk it. I mean, I, I have. I, I'm pretty bad at basketball. I never played it growing up. So, but I could, t- you know, Carlos could teach me a few things. Justin Knight could teach me a few things. So hopefully, you know, those boys can like train me before that for like ten minutes, and then hopefully I don't go to jail. Yeah, yeah. we need a we need a coffee club uh, video of you guys attempting the challenge or something like that, and put money right, down. Well, I'll mention it. Video. I'll mention it to the boys. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're we'll, we've got some ideas coming out, so that'll that'll be a fun one. We can put into the uh, into the pot. <laughs> all right so people can catch you on the coffee club podcast and then i guess next up racing wise you got miller's game sub 350 going for the win this time around right that sounds about right <laughs> yeah i'm hoping so hoping so i mean like the field's gonna probably be ridiculous but i'd love to i mean miller's is a fantastic event so it'd be awesome to come away for a win like that but i think for me yeah it's going to races and trying to win races is definitely the name of the game these days so that's that's the plan and then breaking Matram's twelve fifty five record outdoors for five k. Oof, that might be tough. I mean, I, I got a message from him after the race, and uh, you know he said great job, and, and looking forward to seeing how, how you go for this year. And um, you know, breaking his record would be pretty interesting. <laughs> It'd be pretty hard to do too. So I mean, Stewie hasn't done it yet either. So that's a, that's a task. I think for us is to hopefully get under thirteen minutes, hopefully get under three thirty for the fifteen, and. And then we can put ourselves up there with a very, very good company. And that would be a very, very um, lovely way to, to aim for uh, this season. Awesome. Well, Ollie, appreciate you taking the time to do this. This is a, a blast. And uh, looking forward to, to listening to more uh, on the Coffee Club podcast. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Appreciate Please. it. The City of Smack podcast is a production of the City of Smack podcast network. It is produced and edited by Mike Zerzolo. Did you enjoy this episode enough to dish out a couple bucks? Support Sidious Mag by pledging any dollar amount over on patreon.com slash Mag to join our loyal legion of backers who keep this show going strong. If you're on your phone right now, you can also open up the Venmo app and hit us with a one-time donation to at Mag. We've also got merch over on SidiousMag.com. Any way you can show your support goes a long way. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. Legs are feeling good. See you next time.